Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, ftrapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men, and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment. I was letting my guard down, walking down those streets that like I wouldn't walk down previously. You know, I lived there for two years before, and there were streets I would never go down, even in a car. And now I find myself sitting out there on those streets. It was challenging because it fractured my identity in, in, a, in a sense, going from like number one PhD program for sociology in the country. I left, I left there to go to a nonprofit job that was, would have been coveted by, you know, people would have wanted that job, right? And then I'm now eating at the homeless shelter. And nobody gives a fuck about any of that stuff right. when you get there. Nobody cares. Nobody cared what school I went to. Nobody cared that I knew Stephen Curry and all that stuff. Nobody cared. You have to figure out who are you now? That was my big question. Like, who am I now that all those labels and the kind of things, I've, the crutches I've leaned on are gone? Are you ready? You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Finally, we are introducing The Foundation, a powerful online virtual community for young men in middle school and in high school who want to become the strongest versions of themselves mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Young men who see themselves as leaders in their family, in their community, in their school, and in the world. For young men who know that they are destined for greatness. What young men will experience in The Foundation powerful virtual community is the foundational building blocks of masculinity, improve self-confidence, expert mentorship and coaching, improve relationships, understanding and dealing with stress, deeper self-awareness, improved communication skills, improved healthy habits, some mindset work, improved clarity on career and purpose, physical fitness and nutrition guidance, and connection to a strong community. The group will meet starting on Sunday, March 5th, 2023, and will run every two weeks. But feel free to join at any time. There'll be high-end guest speakers, group discussions, questions and answers, and one-on-one accountability check-ins. The cost of the program is $47 per month. There's risk-free money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied after the first month. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, buildingmencoach at gmail.com. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Building Men Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dennis Meralda. I am joined today by Damian White. He is an author from Columbus, Ohio. He wrote the book, I Made a Place for You. He's also in the sports card game, so we're going to talk about that a little bit on the episode. He's got a really cool story. I just had an opportunity to, to shoot the shit with him for a couple minutes. Damian, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. My pleasure, dude. So we started talking a little bit about Cleveland, Ohio, and you said you have a buddy who's a huge Cleveland sports fan. And he, he got a Guardian tattoo, Cleveland Guardian tattoo on his shoulder. So tell me the history of the Cleveland Guardian. I didn't know that there was like a bridge and a history. Do you have any like any history there? I was just curious. Yeah. So my only history comes from like what he's told me. So I just know that there's a bridge in Cleveland and the st- like on the pillars of the bridge, they're the Guardian statues. So that's actually like part of what inspired the name change. Um, and like most people didn't know that. Like I didn't, I had no idea. I'm, I live two hours away from there. Right. Um, so he got that tattoo years before they even changed the name just as an homage to the city. So it's pretty cool. But I don't know any of the real backstory. They need to give him season tickets for life by doing that. That's a, yeah, that's he, a huge move. For sure. He also got a melt tattoo, you know, melt like the sandwich place. Yeah. So he got a melt like sandwich eating a pierogi. And like because Cle- and Cleveland apparently was where the first melt, like the original melt was. So now he gets to eat for free or discounted for at melt for the rest of his life. So, I mean, I guess diving into your city can be very beneficial. Right. I need to interview this guy. Is there anything that he won't put on his body? Is there anything that's off limits there? <laughs> I like, don't know. Maybe, start, maybe if it's not like, from Cleveland. Like friend, right. like, all right. So it has to be Cleveland based <laughs> is, is the whole thing. All right. Very, very interesting there. So it was – um. It was cool to talk to you for a couple minutes before the episode. I, I like to do that to get to know the guest a little bit. And you you start going down a, a couple different rabbit holes. And 
just a, a a really cool conversation to start with about your you're growing up in Cleveland, Ohio area, and then you went to school in North Carolina. So you've had a, a couple of different areas in your life where you lived. And we started talking about the origins of building men. And you said that you used to be in a fraternity at Davidson. And so I'll start there. So we'll, I'll start there and then we'll go in, in both directions from there. So you're in college in Davidson. You studied sociology. It was also my, I had a coordinate major. I studied education and I did a major in sociology. And for me, Damien, it was, I studied education and you needed to have a second major. You needed to. So I looked at the list and I said, sociology, there's the least number of credits that I can take to get a dual major in sociology. Mm -hmm. So I went with it. And sociology turned out to be one of the reasons why Building Men started. I worked in a, an at-risk, uh, like a, a youth home for at-risk kids. And they were there. It was really, really significant. And I thought, wow, that something needs to be done to help these kids on a larger scale, which is one of the reasons I started Building Men. So tell me about your experience taking the, the major of sociology, like what was a big life lesson that you took away from that, that, that turned your idea about society around? Absolutely. I mean, I love sociology. So, I mean, I studied it for four years or, you know, basically four years, two and a half years of it as a major. And then I went to grad school actually to become a sociology professor. I was in, I was in a PhD program and I left about two years into it just because I didn't, I decided like when I saw what the professor life actually looked like in real life, kind of the veil unfurled in front of me, I was like, this isn't the future I see for myself. Um, but I think that what sociology showed me that was super important was like, there are micro ways to look at the world, like interactions between people, kind of like the things that are happening on the ground and there are macro ways to look at the world. So when you zoom out and you can kind of like, how are entire communities being organized? How are like, how are movements happening? How are, how is this like, for instance, religion or politics how are they like moving people i think like being able to zoom in and out and learning the kind of like skills to do that was super critical for me because i studied sociology and i was studying like non-resident fathers and how that impacted a uh, boy's masculine masculinity development so like if your father's not there does it affect how you you know how your masculinity develops and so that was kind of my research absent fathers and i was i felt like i was studying my own life you know, and I think that was the coolest part. It was also like the, the double-edged sword because you realize that when, whenever you study anything, that paper's always in with like, there's more research to be done, you know, like the limitations of it. And so right. like, I also found that in my life, like I wasn't getting the answers from my papers or reading that were going to necessarily fix all the problems in my life, but I was gaining insights. And I think that just knowing that helped me like want to keep pursuing sociology. I love that. And I mean, going down the professor route, it sounds glamorous, but then you have to buy like a tweed jacket, yeah. you know, and it's the whole look has got to change. You got to, it, it's a whole different thing. And then happy hour, happy hour is like you talking about your work with a bunch of other people who want to just wait for you to finish so they can talk about their work. Right. It's just like, that's every place you go with these, with this group of people. And I just found it was kind of empty for me, you know? Um, I was missing out on like the creative aspect of my life. There was no like writing papers for grad school and for like publishing, you know, grad school is publish or perish typically in those fields because the coveted jobs are the professor jobs. So if you're not writing papers and like that means learning the formula, like learning how to write those papers in a way that like gets them in the journals, um, it's the opposite of like what I do creatively. You know, there's there's much more strict, there are many more strict rules and regulations sort of for how those how that work is done where like, I liked writing after school much better than I liked writing in school, you know? So when I came home and I was writing my poetry or writing music or whatever I was doing, like it was way more energizing and fun for me than having to kind of like, look at these papers that my professor was sending me back with all the red markups. And I'm like, the, the English is correct. It's just not presented the way that, you know, it needs to be for the journal. And I had a, I had a tough time, like right. kind of killing my creativity to like mold myself to fit into that you know, field. So I found that to be another reason why I just didn't think it was for me. Just the red marking on the paper, right? Whoever decided red was going to be the color of like, okay, there's something wrong with what you just handed to me at whatever point that happened. I'm sure a lot of people are listening right now and have some PTSD around the red markings that are that's on the paper. If you're a teacher out there, just turn it to green, put it in a different <laughs> color, use orange, something other than the red. So it's fascinating that that, that you studied sociology in that capacity and your your idea was around the non-resident father uh there's so much there we could do several episodes just on that topic so if you could you you said you, you would zoom in and out so do first the <clears throat> excuse me the the zoom out on that so non-resident fathers 
as a, like how it impacts our society as a whole. What's one or two things that you learned during that, that you were like, I'm going to take this and, and use this to be part of my mission moving forward. Yeah. So I learned, I mean, I learned one that there was a, you know, just from looking at statistics. So one, you think you kind of like a lot of times we're just in our own crucible. I, I like to say, you know, we, we can't, we're prisoners of our own mind a lot of times. So you think you're the only person going through something. But when I started studying non-resident fatherhood, I was like looking at these stats and there's just like thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that grow up like that. Right. And so like, then you, then I was able to learn like there are patterns. So like how, whether it has to do with salary or, like home ownership or, you know, like the numbers were down for non-res kids that came from those families versus kids that came from nuclear families. And so learning that, like, there's one, one thing is to look at that data and say, okay, well, this means it's unlikely for me to be successful. But the other thing is to like, try to figure it out and tease through, like, what does this actually mean? Like, what's, is it really just, it's not just a person being there. Like, what's that person doing? And that's when you have to zoom in, right? So like, what is that extra person doing, adding to this person, this kid's life that is um, transforming them in the way that they can have these successful outcomes. And so I found that to be the fascinating part. Um, and so I got to work with a few professors on, on, on their book projects and kind of like digging some like ethnographic data, some more like interview data, you know, so like they were interviewing hundreds of men asking about their work and their lives, like work-life balance and things like that. And so for me, I think that like having the most data points, right? So if you're just thinking about your story, like me, I'm just thinking about my story. Like I grew up right. in a, with a single, single mom, my aunt and my grandma lived in my house. So I had three people there and my brother was there, but my father wasn't right. So I didn't technically grow up in just a single, you know, like to me, right. I had to change my mind. Like they're the, the people I was reading about they grew up with just their mom a lot of times and there are no other adults in the household. So when I was couching the, that kind of like research into my own life, I just thought, okay, well, I had three people instead of two. So maybe there were some things like, like if it really is about that person and those things that they're doing, how do I know that I couldn't, I wasn't receiving some of those things from like the other women in my life, for instance. And so these are the kind of questions that like, you know, it, it'll take you a year five to like research that, but like fun little thought experiments to do, you know, and, and, and ways to like take what I was learning and see like how I could make my own life better. Right. So you're taking your research and you're looking at it from the macro level. Okay. How does this impact society? The micro level, what am I seeing on an individual basis? And then taking that, how does that impact me and my view of the world? Were there any stats that you learned through that in your research that were really eye-opening to you? Like you thought one thing and then during your research, you're like, wow, this is, it's not what I thought. It's been a while since I looked at any of that. Yeah. Uh, so I can't remember, but I do remember, like, I, I always thought it was interesting that you know, you could look at a paper from like the seventies or something, a research been published in a journal in the seventies. And like the methods used were still the same as those used in like 2013 or 12, when I was, whenever I was in grad school. And I just thought like, you know, a lot of things that were frustrating to me were that you were try still trying to prove theories from people that were a hundred years old, you know? And so like those theories and those methods together, like you're, you're kind of bound to those frameworks. And I felt like it was, it showed me that the field was moving slower than real life because like real life attitudes and people and experiences were changing, but the field of sociology is still kind of like trying to figure right. out if Karl Marx, Karl Marx is right. I, I just found that to be challenging. I right. also, I also thought like there's so many limitations on data. Like every data set was like, there are white people, black people, Asian people, and then like other. Right. And so everything is all the baselines are compared to the white population. Right. So like, it's always like, you know, Asian men are more likely or less likely than white. And then like black men are more or less likely than white men. And so I found that like, no one ever turned that, you know, like I've read this interesting study that was talking about math, right? So like when they made the baseline, like the Asian population, like the way that the sentences even sound like Asian men are 70% more likely than white men to become this or, or to, you know, and like, that's not how any of the papers read because I think that like there's still agendas in certain fields. And so like for me, like my research wasn't race-based or anything. Like it was just like fathers. Right. Um, but I found that like no matter how hard you kind of tried to get to the meat and potatoes of the issue you're studying, you ran up against these like these walls that no matter what you're taught, you could be studying, you know, religion or I could be studying, you know, fatherhood, but we're both going to get to the race conversation or the, you know, 
the income conversation, the class conversation, they they kind of naturally arise. And um, I think that like it just made it, it made it difficult for me to see where the like when when I'd have my lighthouse moment, right? Like when I'd feel like we had really made I had made progress and I didn't want to be a person that stayed in the field, wrote papers, and then like when I'm 70 years old, looked back like I didn't do anything. You know, and I also found it challenging that like the people who like who are the people reading those papers? They're other professors and other students. And so like the things I cared about, and it this probably resonates with you, like with building men, the people I cared about who were other boys who were probably going through the same situations with me were not, did not have access to those papers. One, because you have to pay these particular sites to get access to those journals. And also they don't even, they wouldn't even know that those are the places right. where that research is being done. So it was, it was kind of like, I felt like I was doing work for the wrong people. Yeah. If you're, if you're a 17 year old kid, who's really struggling with a million different things, you're using drugs, you're contemplating suicide, you're depressed, you're looking for your tribe. You're not going and, and reading a scholarly journal about, no. you know, absent fatherhood. You might be watching TikTok if you have access to it or hanging out with your buddy. Like that's where you need to concentrate your efforts. Right. And and I appreciate you saying that too. So Damien, when in your research, was there was there something that you found around Kids who are boys who are growing up with an absent father, uh, it could be in a situation where it's just mom at home or like your situation was mom, your grandmother and your brother at home. So kids that are growing up with an absent father, but they have a male mentor or a male role model in their life. What is your or what are your thoughts or did you do any research around? Was there a difference in how these young men were able to cope in society or how it impacted their masculinity? Kids that were raised in a nuclear family with a father who was there or kids that were raised in a family with with an absent father, but had someone in their life, some male mentor or role model? Yeah, so I didn't research that, but I did benefit from uh, like programs. So like I was a sociology major, but I worked with a lot of social work professors, you know, in the summertime. So I would go like, I, I, I did research at University of Chicago one summer um, with a social work professor there. And it was interesting because you could see the manifestation of what you just said in programs, right? So like there were lots of programs that were geared at this, population of people and so i knew that that it was that there was a concern a need that was being filled there and so like for me that was the bridge between what i was reading and like what i wanted to see happening in real life so i did i wasn't able to like social work's a different field you have to get different degrees different right. licenses and things like that but i did get to go research with some social work professors and they were running boys programs and i got to like meet the meet the boys and like see kind of like what was going on and watch them talk and see the you know see the activities that they were doing so that was that was enlightening for me i i also um worked with a group of boys in charlotte with my fraternity and we taught them like some computer literacy skills and like how just how to do stuff that they weren't learning in school on the computer you know um and so i think that for me personally mentors have been vital I've always said, I just need one person. I, I've, I always, I just need one additional person to believe in the thing. And then usually you kind of have to convince yourself that you're, you're not, you're not crazy. You know, like, I know this is right. I know this is good and trust your gut and all that. And I think there's another point at which once you've, you've done convincing yourself, if you can just get one person to, to kind of like co-sign and help you like, feel like you have momentum, then like it can be transformational. And for me, that's always been the case. I've always just said that, you know, I just need one, but I don't need everybody to like, you don't need everybody to support you. I just need to know that I have another person I can call and they're not going to hang the phone up with me. They're going to like hear my idea. They're going to add to my idea. They're going to bring something to the table. They're going to enjoy the fact that they have a friend or person that is trying to make progress. And I've I've always tried to keep a mentor or two around, you know, and I, I've found mentors can be whoever, you know, it's funny. I, I would tell, I would tell people that all of my mentors for the most part were middle-aged white women. You know, and like, it's weird because that wasn't like, that's not you. A lot of times you think that your mentor has to look like you, right? but like the people that were giving me opportunities and explanations and time were they just, they weren't people that look like me all the time, you know? And so I found that like you have, if you're open to like knowing kind of like the value of the interaction you're having, just go, going back to the micro level, you know, yep. understanding what that you're, you guys are offering each other, then it doesn't matter like what the person looks like or, you know, how much success they have. Like sometimes it's just like, knowing that that person is willing to work with you, knowing that they're willing to invest in your success. So um, I found that that's been useful to me to stop. It, it helped me stop thinking like my mentors have to be exactly where I right. want to be or look exactly like me. And they don't. The mentors that you have, did they have traits that reminded you of either your mother or your grandmother? 
Probably, yeah, I think so. I mean, there was and that that's like that's a very good point. I think that there was a nurturing quality that came from like those mentors I had that made it easy for me to relate to them and to want to do the work and like participate in whatever they had going on because I I recognize that feeling, right? I recognize that that kind of maternal, you know, feeling that I was getting and so like it felt like I was just at home even when I was just like meeting with them over, you know, to talk about whatever we were working on. So I think that that's definitely true. Yeah. And I never thought about that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me. And I'm wondering if you grew up in a, like a nuclear family with a, a father figure that was there, if a mentor that you would look for in your life would remind you more of, of that. It's, it's fascinating for me to think about. I craved a male mentor uh, from, from a man who, had qualities that my father didn't have. I had a lot of issues with with the way that I was raised and still it's a, still a challenging relationship right now with my father. So he was there, he was present, but there were so many things that were done that I didn't receive and then that were done in a detriment that really messed me up for many, many years. So the other thing that I'm wondering is if you are growing up in a nuclear family with a father that has a negative influence on you. Like, how does that impact a young man versus having a father that's not there? And you have a mom and a grandmother, whoever that is there and supportive versus having someone who can be more toxic or an asshole. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And and I I always think about this when I see movies and like there's the dad that just kind of like drinks beer and sits on the couch and like his wife's doing all this stuff and like taking the kids to practice and all that. And I'm, and I'm always like, OK, so is having an absent father worse than having a present father there being absent? You know what I mean? So I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's better because what in one scenario, in my scenario, I'm resentful of the person that's not there. Right. But I could I could fathom how you would be resentful of that same person sitting on the couch. So you, your studies were in, in masculinity and, and how like it impacted. What were lessons that you needed to learn in masculinity from a, a male role model in your life that you didn't receive during your upbringing? Yeah, for one, I had no concept of money or value of like, I didn't have any breadwinner, any of that breadwinner kind of aggressive um, personality. I didn't have that, you know? So like I saw women working, you know, and taking care of the thing and bills and all this stuff like that. And I never had like that guy who came like, I'm the guy now, you know, in my house, yeah. I come home and I'm like, I'm working on this podcast stuff and I'm writing my book and I'm doing these things. Like I'm talking and people hear that my stepson's hearing that and everyone's hearing that I didn't have anything like that. And so for me, like I didn't have any like concept of why I needed to like be financially, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't planning to be the provider. That was never like a goal. Like, where in all the studies they were saying that like men's number one thing is provider. My number one role is provider and women are the caregivers. And so you're reading all these books and studies that say this and you're like, yeah, I don't even feel an ounce of that, you know? And so like, I think part of that just came from the fact that there was no man in my house kind of like showing that, like what it looks like to walk down that path and what that role looks like to undertake that, you know, there was no guy coming home. Like I pay all the bills so I can do what I want. I never heard that. You right. know? And like, th that's, you know, when you're a grown man and you're living in your house and you could feel like it's a prison because you're like, I don't know how to do what I want. So you know, interesting. I don't, right. I don't know how to do what I want because even though I'm making money, like I still don't know how to, I don't know how to exhibit the thing. Like that, that thing is something I feel like has developed over time. So that's one, you know, there's the, there's the typical, I don't know how to change a tire and the oil chain, all those things, right? Like, yeah. you know, all that stuff is much more minuscule to me than I think just like, sometimes it matters just being able to look over and see a person doing stuff, you know, like I never saw a guy cooking in the kitchen. I never saw a guy like taking my mom to her, right. din her dentist appointment. I never saw any of those things. So like for me to grow up and find out why those are valuable and like in my own relationships, like how do I make sure I'm exhibiting the things that like, for instance, my wife came from a nuclear family. So like her expectations for what a man's supposed to do, they're not going to be this. They weren't the same as like what I grew up learning. So like I had to constantly learn and have to still constantly learn. Like some of the assumptions she makes are just because she's been around good right. men. You know yes. what I mean? And I, and I had it. So I think that like, I, it's a learning curve. I definitely want to dive into your relationship with, with your wife and your stepson. Um, but, but before we get there, um, what you talked about too sparked a thought that I had. So the way that I was raised with my father was he was hyper focused on my athletic ability. And so my relationship with him had a direct correlation with how I, how I did 
on the basketball court, on the football field, on the baseball field. And if, mm-hmm. if I was successful, I received validation and love. If I was unsuccessful, it was the antithesis of that. And our, our relationship really started to splinter as I got into my later middle school, early high school years. He was overbearing. And then uh, it was it came to c- confrontation several times. When he raised my younger brother, who's 14 years younger than me, he saw that he it was a detriment the way that he was raising me, like in that really hyper-aggressive way. So he took a back seat with my brother, and he really wasn't involved in my brother's upbringing at all. I took more of a father figure role to my younger brother, Anthony. But having done that, like I, I was 19 when he was five. So I'm in school and mm-hmm. he's is in this form in these formative years and he didn't have a male role model, so to speak. So my father took that hands off approach with Anthony growing up. Anthony now in his life, he's going to be 32. He has really challenging relationships with men. He almost he's he's fearful of of relationships like he feels like he needs to go in and puff out his chest a lot like it's not a comfortable type of relationship so do you find the same thing having not being raised in a family with you know with a father figure around for you are your relationships with men now more strained or do you have to work more to connect with men than you do with women yeah for sure and i i'm the opposite so like i see all that like chest puffing up happening and i don't want to participate in it right like I get, I don't get anything from another guy thinking that like I'm tougher than him, you know? So like, and I don't, and I, I just, I just don't like, I don't, I, it's so funny to say, because I don't, I don't know why, but I just don't. So I, um, I find it difficult for me to sit around that, you know, to be around that because you can feel it. You can feel when yes. guys are not, there's, it, there's no transparency in the conversation. It's just ego talking, you know? And like, you're trying to bump your shoulders and see whose shoulders are broader and like that kind of thing. And so I find it to be a frivolous activity for me because it's just like, I could obviously like, I can talk my, I could talk, you know what I mean? I could talk shit, you know, I could yeah, talk, yeah, you yeah. know, I could, I could do the thing. But like, I think that like at the end of it, I just sit and think like, what was that for? Like, I don't feel better. And I also feel bad because I uttered those things. I feel bad because I said those things. Now I've tried to make that person look dumb or little. And like, you just start to ask yourself, like, what is the point of all that? And if you ever, and if you ever take the time to do that, I feel like 99.9% of the time you're going to realize it's just, it's just you trying to self-inflate your own ego and make yourself feel better. And there's so many better ways to do that. There's so many better ways to just find that inside of yourself without having to make someone else feel small. And that, is, that happens. It's happened throughout history. Ever since men had penises, it's just yeah. one of those things that happens. So if, if I'm a young man listening to this episode right now, and I find myself in a situation like that, and here's what young men struggle with, right? They find themselves in a situation and there's more of a crowd around and someone is challenging their, their presence there, their masculinity, calling them a pussy or doing whatever. Yeah. And you, there's this moment that happens and we've all been there where you're like, what do I do here? Do I, do I go after it? Do I, am I more of an aggressor in this situation? Do I, do I back away? Like, yo man, I'm cool. No problem. You want to save face. There's a lot that goes on as adult men. I'm like, listen, th- I'm not going to get into a fight with you right now. Unless like you are threatening people that I love and I need to protect them. If you like, whatever at a bar, something like that happens, I don't need to get involved with it. But I'm, yeah. if I'm 16, 17, I don't have that level of maturity yet to do that. So what advice would you give to a kid who finds himself in that situation? I, I understand like, yeah, you could walk away, but practically, is there, are there any things that we can do or say if I'm a 16, 17 year old? So take a couple, take a couple of deep breaths, you know, before you make a, make a choice. <laughs> Sorry. I think acting out of any, um, acting out of any emotion is challenging, right? So like, even like if you're super happy and you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this thing because I'm happy. Like that's not always the best. So sometimes I think you have to take a step back. It is super challenging. It's one of those situations that's like very hard to hard to imagine how someone else feels in there in, in, in those moments. Cause for me, I, I definitely have felt that mm-hmm. so many times. And I'm like you, like, I'm like, I'm not gonna fight a guy at the bar. I'm not, I can just go home. I just think like you could be anywhere else, you know? And like this moment isn't doesn't have to define you. So like maybe having a little motto to tell yourself in those moments, right? So like mantra. this, yeah, like a little mantra, like this, this isn't like, this isn't going to define me. Like this is going to pass. Like this is, you know, this is silly. And like, I'm, I'm not going to engage it. Whatever that thing is that you want to say to yourself, but something so that you can kind of ground yourself again, I think is is super key. Um, because how I would, if, you know, when they get a little older, maybe I would say that you kind of have to think about the outcome before 
the actual incidents, right? So think about how you're going to feel after you punch him in the face, right? Your hand's going to hurt. He's probably going to punch you back. So your face might hurt, you know? And like, you're probably not going to get the validation that you think from the fact that his face hurts too. And your face hurts, you know, like you're not like, it's, it's, it's the eye for an eye thing is dead. Do you know? It's, that's not, a, that's not a real, that's not a real thing. You know what I mean? So I think that if you can imagine what it feels like after you've gone through this, whatever brawl you're about to go through in the schoolyard and realize now everyone's talking about you, you might lose. Number one, you might yeah. lose. So now you're, now you're embarrassed. And now you're, now you're going to be trying to figure out how do I get, even just the status I had back, right? Even just to be the guy that they're right. calling a pussy, right? You know, what I mean, just to be that guy again because and now everyone's chasing like, yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. Now you're chasing it. So I think that if you can fast forward in your mind and see that that's what happens, like there's there's no you're not like going to be the heavyweight champion. You're not Mike Tyson. Like right. none of that's happening after you win the fight if you happen to win. So if you're able to see that, then I think that like it's very useful for decision making. You're able to say like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Building men of character, integrity, strength, compassion, and empathy through coaching, mentoring, professional development, facilitation, and motivational speaking is our mission here at Building Men to work with me. Information is in the show notes on our website at buildingmen.io, or you can send me an email at buildingmencoach at gmail.com. We are here to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally and physically now back to the show i love that damien and i think just taking a couple breaths in situations when emotion is highly present in any capacity it's such good advice to young men and it's something i wish i wish i had known that when i was in high school i wish i knew the power of breathing and what that can do yeah advice that i'll give to parents very frequently is don't have highly emotional conversations like you know the topic is going to be really emotional when you talk to your child especially a young man don't have those emotional conversations from a place of really prominent emotion so take take a half hour take an hour go calm down tell them to calm down and then revisit the conversation and don't discipline from a place of emotion either they yeah. they come home late and they're drunk that's not the time to be like you son of a bitch and go after them be like, we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning, take a couple deep breaths and then revisit the conversation or an hour later or whatever it is that will do wonders for you as a parent, if you're listening to that. And then if you're a young man listening to this and you're in a place of emotion, be like, can we come back to this in a half hour? I just need to, I need time to take a deep breath to calm down. The conversation will be much more productive if that happens. Yeah. And I think I'm a step parent. I don't have any of my kids, any kids of my own, but I think that what I've learned just in the last few years is, is that not to also give advice from like a place of, how I say like, like the little rote area in your mind where you just say the things that, you know, you know, you're supposed to say like, that's bad. You know, like the things that like yeah. you heard, they're basically stereotypes, but for parents, you know what I mean? Like not speaking from that place either. So like, sure. If my kid is caught doing something bad like i can tell him the standard speech that like is in the parent handbook you know or i can be like what is the thing that i like what is the thing i really want him to know okay he got suspended and he's got his phone taken away okay well i want you to know that this is a micro lesson in life so if you go do something like that like that in real life and you go to jail they're also going to take your phone away they're also going to take your stuff away you're going to have these same feelings and there's going to be it's not going to be your mom that you're complaining to trying to get your phone away it's going to be a co or a guard who doesn't right. give a fuck about who doesn't give a right. fuck about you right right at all he doesn't care so if you can't see like so like for me instead of telling him like that's bad i'm saying i want you to see the lesson in this like it's annoying and frustrating right now because you don't have your phone but it's going to this is supposed to be teaching you that like you're it's a reminder that your actions have consequences yeah and sometimes that. those are and the, sometimes those reminders come in ways that are annoying and frustrating you know but like that's this this is th this moment is less frustrating than when you're sitting in a cell for six months or a year for us for something that like was just a quick decision the same way you did something in school yeah, that that quick decision that it could have enormous ripple effects on your life. So, Damien, I want to revisit the conversation you had mentioned. Uh, you are the stepfather of a 16 year old son right now. And so your your wife came from a nuclear family, uh, had that positive male role model in her life. And you came from a family where that was not the case. So coming from, you know, the, the juxtaposition of what was going on, there was a, a pretty vast one. So 
when you were first, you know, getting together with your wife and deciding, okay, we're going to make this more of a union before you got married, did you have intentional conversations around those ideas? Like, this is the shit that I'm coming with. She could say, this is the shit that I'm coming with. Let's be intentional about our relationship. And then also about how we want to raise this young man. Yeah, we had, we had those. I think it mostly came out in just us sharing our insecurities, you know, like, she was before, before she was married previously and she was a stay at home mom, you know? And so I imagine that, right. A stay at home mom. I'm looking at that coming from a family that had three working women in the house. So like her value system of what's like her, the things that like were her achievements, kind of like how we, we get a raise or a bonus or something yeah. were like things that had to do with the kids. And so like, that doesn't translate to me. That didn't translate to me immediately because I'm, I'm not, I didn't work in that framework. So we had to kind of talk about that. So like my expectations were that I had always seen women working. So like I didn't plan on having a stay-at-home wife, right? Not not that I think anything's wrong with that, right. but like my concept of like family was just that women were also bringing things to the table because that's what I saw. And then I just kind of liked the idea that we would both be doing that, you know? Not to say that if we ever get to a point where like she doesn't have to work, that I could fulfill that thing too. But I think that like, for me initially, it was super important not to give her the impression that I was going to like sweep her off her feet and tell her that she could stay home and like be a stay at home wife and all those things. That just wasn't the case because I didn't have the, I didn't have that foundation or backbone. I didn't know what that meant for myself. I knew it would breed resentment because I would feel like I was on an Island, you know? Right. And I, I I had to express that to her um, in the beginning so that we could kind of understand each other better. And for her, it was like, you know, she didn't like some of the aspects of being a stay-at-home wife, like or stay-at-home mom. She didn't have her own money. She did, couldn't go buy stuff when she wanted to. She didn't have the freedom to just be like, "Hey, I want to go to the nail store and buy a whole bunch of stuff." You know, she had to get it approved through the, you know, through the bank of her ex. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. So, so like that's the that 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 is a big shift for her too. Because now I'm like I'm I'm the complete opposite. I'm like I don't care what you buy. Like if you go to work and you want to spend a hundred dollars at the nail store or do that, you know, she does nails on the side. So if you want to do that, that's fine. Like I'm not gonna I'm not going through the statements and like checking and asking you about it. But that was an adjustment for her too because in her past marriage she had to like ask for stuff basically. Wow. You know, and so us coming together was was just us trying to figure out like what is that what does it look like for you know for for us and also her dad was just financially stable, so she was used to seeing a man who, if her mom needed X Y and Z he could provide that all the bills are always paid he always had savings she always had this there was never a moment where like kids need shoes can't buy shoes, you know. Um, and they immigrated from Mexico and like he built his life here so like his whole kind of like identity was provider breadwinner. Mm-hmm. So even meeting him, like I didn't have the best job when I first met him. So like, even that was like, and he was like an engineer, you know? So like for me trying to like bridge that gap was tough because like, I need you to see the other stuff besides the kind of labels that you're used to like checking off to see if I, if, if the guy is up to par, you know? And he's like, he's this guy who's ultra successful and he's never, he's never had to worry about money. And you're like, I'm a sociology major and I'm a poet. And he's right. like, are you fucking kidding me? You want to marry my daughter? You want to be with my daughter, right? Like that's how that generation- That's how I hear that. that yeah, yeah, that's how I heard it in my mind. Yes. It didn't come out like that in right. real life, but that's what I expected. I expected yep. I was going to go over there and like ask to marry her. And he's going right. to be like, fuck out of here. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, so then, so you're coming from this spot where the women in your life were, they were going out and working, where in her life, that was not the case. So being able to come and have those conversations and the point being, it's- being intentional about your insecurities. And one of the things that we really believe in here in building men is like, it's the balance between strength and vulnerability to be open and honest about like, these are the things that I'm really worried about right now, because if you're not open and honest with your partner about those things, they come out in a negative way. You stuff them down and you medicate or you buffer with drinking, with yeah. drugs, with whatever, with porn or, or another way. So it's having those intentional conversations. So I give you credit for being intentional around that. So I want to backtrack now. We started in your high school, uh, your high school into college career, but you, part of the thing that you talk about um, in your, in your bio and things like that is you were, you, you were homeless when you were younger growing up. So I need to, I need to talk to you a little bit about that. Like to, when was that happening in your life? And Pick out an experience through that that the audience would really like get a wow moment from. Yeah, for sure. So I was homeless twice, um, once in 2014 and again in 2017. The second time was more substantial. I was in San Francisco. Um, I had lost my job 
and I was reluctant to go back home. So I guess the story I'll tell um, is that I was partially homeless by choice and by circumstance, right? So like I lost my job and I could have gone home, but I had built up so much of so much resentment for home because it was the place that I was trying to escape. I wanted to have my own stuff. I wanted to have my own independence. I wanted to be perceived yeah. as a person that was taking care of business and like adulting, you know? And so like to, to, you know, to concede that, to say like, Hey, I'm not doing all those things. I'm going to go back and live on my mom's couch in her spare room. And like, I'm going to drive a car and like, I'm going to have to ask yeah. if someone could buy me a phone again. And I'm going to yep. try to restart my life it was a very challenging back against the wall moment for me. And so I just ended up staying there for three months. You know, I was eating at the homeless shelter. I was sleeping in parks. I was, you know, frolicking with the, with the population, you know? And so it wasn't until like I really felt like my life was in danger that I decided I know I just have to go home. You know, I, I I had been out there long enough to feel like these people were starting to become my friends, you know, um, and I was letting my guard down, walking down those streets that like I wouldn't walk down previously. You know, I lived there for two years before and there were streets I would never go down, even in a car. And now I find myself sitting out there on those streets. Right. And so, like, I think that, like, it was. It was challenging because it fractured my identity in, in, a, in a sense, going from like top, I was at Michigan, number one PhD program for sociology in the country. I left, I left there to go to a nonprofit job that was, would have been coveted by, you know, people would have wanted that job, right? And then I'm now eating at the homeless shelter and nobody gives a fuck about any of that stuff right. when you get there. Nobody cares. Nobody cared what school I went to. Nobody cared that I knew Stephen Curry and all that stuff. Nobody cared, you know? And so like, you have to figure out who are you now? That was my big question. Like, who am I now that all those labels and the kind of things I've, the crutches I've leaned on are gone. Who is Damian White? And so I think that the last, I'd say three to five years has been me answering that question for myself, you know? And part of the reason why I ended up writing a poetry book was to, to address the same thing. Just like, who am I now? And how do I turn, how do I make sure that those three months of time don't overshadow the other 30 years of my life? You know, because I had all these other achievements, all this other momentum, all these other great moments. But like, it's super easy to just relegate your life back to that terrible moment and think that like extrapolate into like something way bigger. And so I'm trying to avoid that, be productive and um, make make sure that I'm not living in regret for the rest of my life. I, uh, I appreciate you going down that road with us there and and to go from your upbringing feeling like, okay, I, I made it, I'm in college, I'm doing these things. And then you feel like you're climbing the ladder and all of a sudden you find yourself in the gutter, like yeah. literally. So as a sociology major, there, there absolutely is a subculture of homelessness in the San Francisco area, right? So as a sociologist, What's something that you picked out or that you noticed about what was happening as you were living that life? Yeah. So one of the funny things was I learned about like a barter economy that I didn't know existed. So like people don't have money, like no, none of the homeless people have money. Right. So it's like, how do they get stuff? Well, they trade things. So like if I have seven hoodies that I got from the, you know, the Goodwill and like somebody's cold, but they have shoes, I could trade a hoodie for shoes. Obviously they're trading for lots of things. You know what I mean? But, um, th that, sort of system existed and i didn't even know that like i i assume like you would assume based on like media that everyone's just out robbing and stealing and killing to yeah. get things right that no one's like no one's trading a purse for this thing you know and like it was very fascinating to me i felt like for a while it felt like lewis and clark in a sense like i was exploring new territory because my everything in my life was transactional you know you swipe your card and you get to think you hand them the cash and you get the thing yeah. back but this this is like I know that, you know, it's like if I met you in the morning, I'm like, no, he needs like a pair of shoes. So I might spend my whole day finding shoes for you because when I give those to you, then you can give me something that I want. Right. And like, it was just fascinating. Um, and I didn't know that, you know, it, it got, it could be dangerous, obviously, but the fact that that existed was super interesting to me. And like something I also read about in papers, not about homeless communities, but just about like other, other types of societies that ran on barter economies and just noting, knowing that like that's happening here. Was, was there a, I don't want to say like hierarchical system, but was there like a pecking order in that, in that world? Like this guy was the man you stay away from him or was there anything like that that was happening? 
Yeah, you definitely knew who the people were. I mean, you could tell some of them walk around like it. Some of them are just the, you know, they're the ones who everyone's around them. As soon as, as soon as the day starts and they're outside, everyone's around them. You know, they're each street you walk down, you might see a guy like that or a couple guys like that. You just know, um, you can tell when you're eating at the, at the homeless shelter, like who's at what's table. And like, there's those guys that have the bravado, you know, there's the guys that, that know there's the, there, you can just tell. Um, there are guys that still have stuff, you know, jewelry and things like that. And like those, and you're, you're not sure how they got all of it or like where it came from, but like, you just know that like, even in that world, that materialism still mattered in a sense, like that guy had stuff that people wanted and like, or he knew how to get it, or he just like, he knew people or he'd been there long enough. He'd been in the city for 30 years and like, you could just tell. Um, so I knew who some of the major players were, you know, I play, you know, I, I was around some of them and it was, uh. It was just like anything else. It's like being at work and knowing who the boss is. Yeah. You know, like you just know that's not the guy to be like really rude to or extra aggressive with. You should probably not talk over him. You should probably listen. And you should probably be very quiet when like he's doing his business over there. You know what I mean? Like you just get the sense. So I think that um that's definitely exists for sure. So as a sociologist in that environment, were you doing like impromptu research around <laughs> their backstories, their situations, gathering data. I mean, in a sense, I think that that was happening in my brain, but I yeah. wasn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't right. writing anything right. down or, you know, I was really free and it was, it's, I've been, I, I have a trouble telling people this because it sounds very counterintuitive that like it felt freeing to be there, but I had no bills. I had no, I threw my phone in the ocean. Um, I, I wouldn't, I never recommend that this is the way to do that. But like, those are some unintended consequences of being there. It was like, I didn't have the same problems that everyone else had. And that kind of like felt liberating in a way, in a sense that like, it's, it's hard to fathom because it's illogical, right? You know, most people want to be free from bills, free from all those things, but they want it the way they want it. You want it like when you're at your beach house and your beach house is paying for your regular house. And then you want to be able to know that you're not paying any bills. You don't want it. You don't want it to be that like you're on the streets, but the same rewards that you wanted, I had. Right. Right. And so I felt kind of the freedom of that. And so it was that was that made it difficult for me to want to come home, too, because you're feeling kind of like it feels kind of cushy in a sense because you're like, I don't have rent. Right. You know? talking to my mom and she's like, I got to come up with it. You know, I got the same conversations you're used to having. You're used to hearing, but like, you're like, well, I don't have any money anyway. And I don't have any of those bills. So my life is just going to continue. Like I'm going to the park today, going to the beach. Right. And so like in those moments, there was a bit of vindication and validation in making my choice to leave, you know, to stay there and not leave. Um, But I also had equal amount of moments where it was scary, terrifying, um awful you know things that moments that will trigger PS, ptsd you know i had an equal a balance of those and so i think that like i would never recommend like oh yeah go be homeless so you could find yourself would never recommend that it just happened that in my life that's just the path i took and perhaps it's it's tiptoeing into the minimalist ideas and lifestyles when you yeah. really think about the things that you have and what things you have an emotional attachment to the, the actual things and why do you have that emotional attachment to those things right and i think what happens is as people start making a little bit of money they need to validate that income with more stuff and right. it was one of the things that when i first started building men the boys would tell me well what makes a good man it was how good of an athlete you are bigger faster stronger how many girls are you banging and how much money are you making or how much stuff do you have? So it, it it's something to think about those people that are listening. I mean, two takeaways right now for me is that idea of, of being intentionally minimalistic. And then two, being intentional with opportunities to mentor, to, to be there. You don't know what kids are going through, what their situations are. And, and a minute that you invest in a young man in his life could have a huge ripple effect on other people. So Damien, I want to pick it back up. So now you're like, okay, you're out there for three months and you're going to head back home. Like, okay, I, I've I've had the experience. I've had enough. I'm I'm heading back home. So take us through the time it, that, that was 2017. Yeah. Until now. So during that time, you decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm going to continue with what I want to do, writing poetry and publish this book. So uh, give us a little bit of an idea about your life from the time you came back from being homeless. Yeah. So I was uh, obviously looking for a job for quite a while. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted, I had, a, I got a job that wasn't great. And I was still looking for like a job back in my, the field of marketing, which, you know, that's, that's where I, what I, what I work in. Um, but for me, I've been writing poetry for, since I was four, 
And it was always a way for me to capture thoughts and moments in a way that like, I didn't know how to do otherwise um, because there's no rules. So like with poetry, I can like, you don't have to say it plain, you know? So some of the things I went through were painful and like, I didn't want to write that. I don't want to write a short story about it. I want to capture a feeling from that moment. And so that's, I just kind of got back to my, something that made me happy during childhood. Like I always loved writing. And so I didn't know how else I would get those feelings out, get what was inside of me outside, unless I put pen to paper and wrote the book. So it was always a bucket list item for me to have my name on the spine of a book. And I think that facing death several times in the and in, in, you know, being homeless, let me know that like the book wasn't going to write itself. And if I keep playing around with life, then I will, I wouldn't be there to write it either. So the title of the book is as, as I made a place for you, what does that mean? Like when you, if you were to give me the elevator pitch on what that means to you, what is it, what is it about? Yeah. So it was, I basically was trying to take all the feelings, thoughts, concerns, experiences that I had from my time homeless um, and make space to address them. Right. So like, it's one thing to have a good friend you can call and be like, Hey bro, I'm gonna tell you all the stuff that happened. It's another thing to be at brunch and you're trying to explain to people what was going on in those tents you know, and like everyone's having mimosas and talking about their job and like their, their kids and their new puppy. And you're like, well, this guy almost died that night because he was going to have a heart attack, you know? And so like, I had a, I had a rough time. And like, also some of the things are embarrassing and disappointing and frustrating and so removed from like normal, like regular life that I had trouble finding people and places to talk about it. So I, I made a place for you. The title came from me actually making the space to write those things. And that's why the book was named that I made a place for those ideas, my curiosities, my issues, my traumas, and finding a productive way that I could talk about them. I felt good. I feel better about being able to hand somebody a book and saying, here's a little window into my life versus like, Hey, let me sit here and tell you the story for 30 minutes to an hour. And like, watch you judge me and watch you be terrified and watch you just pray that that's never you, you know, like this is a much more productive outlet for me to get those off my chest. And so that's how I came up with the book name. And you, one of the lines that, that you publish, uh, publicize on the website is the golden rule of speech is to be spoken through. So what does that mean? I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So I think it's uh, the golden rule of speech is to speak when spoken through. And so, so that line, that line means that when you feel inspired, but when I feel inspired, I feel it's my responsibility to get that out of me. You know, as a creative person, um, I, you know, I think that sometimes you can call it writer's block or call it whatever you want sometimes it's just like you don't want to and i i feel like i was always getting these i was always having this i always had this flow of like creative thoughts that i did nothing with you know or it ended up in a notebook and like i just threw it away it wasn't good enough or i was super critical of my own work and so that line is basically me giving myself an accountability structure so it's me saying like when i feel inspired it is my duty to make sure i capitalize on those moments and there's such power in getting your thoughts out we keep those things trapped inside of us, especially men have a really difficult time sharing how we're feeling. One game changer for me in the last couple of years has been to journal on a daily basis. To, to I usually do it when I wake up. So I wake up and I think about something and I just get it down on paper. Is there more of a structured way that you do it? Do you have, do you have like creative time every single day? Is it more free flowing? How do you go about the process of writing? Yeah, so I have, um, I have made it a point to never make myself write. Um, so I write when I feel inspired, I write, like, I'll just have a line or hear a word. Like I'm always watching, you know, watching stuff and I'll hear like words that I've never heard before. And I'll just jot it down. And like some of them, I liked how it was used in like a TV show or something. And then like, I'll try to figure out once I know the meaning of that word, I'm like, I could probably build a poem around that. And like, it's a way for me to like learn new words and concepts and like, you know, all this stuff. So I, I kind of make it fun for me. And I, I only write when I feel like something is inspiring. I don't even, even in those moments, I don't sit and write the poem right there all the time. So it's like, it's really rare for me to actually sit down and write poetry. But when I do, sometimes I write three or four poems at once. Um, Sometimes I write one poem and my book kind of took like, there's only 25 or 24 short poems in the book. And it, you know, it took a year and a half basically to like finish the whole manuscript with the illustrations and everything. But part of that time was just me not rushing myself, not rushing my process. So I want, I want to also be able to look at my book and say, like, I remember writing that poem when I was like sad and drinking a half a bottle of wine, you know, and I can remember that versus like, I just sat and wrote that because I had to put a book out, 
you know i can remember the tears on the pillow on the actual page about the poem that's about the tears on the pillow right you know and so like to me it's like i'm trying to have a creative process that makes me feel good and like i i always say this like i i write for myself like it's cathartic and i i'm happy like as a first-time author i'm able to share with people uh that's just that wasn't never the goal though the goal was always for me to get the toxicity out right so get that out of me and like if i can share that with other people in a positive way and they benefited from it then that's great but the the kind of validation and credence came to me when i received it in my hand the first time so love it and the the artwork is really cool it's yeah. it's well done and it kind of matches the vibe that you you gave us today uh last two questions so when we were first getting to know each other you mentioned that you went to school in uh, davidson in in north carolina and you told the story that there was a time and i asked if steph curry was there you know he was he played at davidson uh drafted into the nba and you said your first year there was his first year in the nba but there was a time that he was at davidson for a month or so and you yeah. actually were in class with them and i said have you ever did you talk to him he said yeah i sat next to him and you asked him a question about is kg really that tall and he's like yeah he's that tall yeah. that was the question so if you had an opportunity to go back and you could interview steph curry and you have one question to ask him after you've had your whole experience you were homeless in the city where he was making hundreds of millions of dollars pretty much what's a question that you would ask curry right now man that is such a phenomenal question wow i would ask him um Wow, that's a great question. I would ask him how he was able to live up to the legacy of his father, you know, because Dell Curry was also an NBA player. Yeah. And I think that question would kind of give me insights because I think that a lot of the a lot of the boundaries that we have are just self-imposed mental restraints, right? And so like hearing from a person like Stephen Curry already knows his dad's a, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's a Hall of Famer or at least an NBA legend, at least. Yeah, Charlotte Hornets, um, great shooter, one of the greatest of right. all time until the sun comes along. Right. And now, and now you have to kind of like live up to that. And like yeah. for most of your life, you're basically like everything until the NBA is practiced to get to the NBA so you can live up to your dad in a sense. And so, like, how do you overcome that kind of men- that, that mental trap? Like, there's a trap there that's very difficult. Um, I would ask him that, like, what are you telling yourself every day so that you can focus on what your goals are for yourself so that by the end of all of this, you're able to be happy with what you produced and what you did and not be looking at it in by the lens of like, did I make my dad proud or did I, did I go above and beyond my dad? And so like, for me, that question is interesting because I don't have that same, like one, I don't have that same desire. Like I could care less what my dad thinks about anything that I'm doing. You know what I mean? So like, no, I just want to know what it feels like to have that kind of sentiment. So that's why I would ask him. That's a, that's a deeper question than are Shaq's feet really that big? Correct. Yes. Way, <laughs> way different. Way different. <laughs> so um, before I ask the last question, tell us where we can find you. How do we get in touch with you by your by your book? Absolutely. So you can go to Damien White Rights. It's D-A-M-I-A-N, whiterights.com and buy my book. Um, Instagram at Damien K. White. I think TikTok as well. Awesome. The last question, Damien, is if I'm listening to this podcast right now and I press pause at the end of the episode and there's one thing that I can do. And by doing this one thing, it can absolutely change my life. What's one thing that I can do right now? Uh, you can remember that the people in your life might not be there forever and you shouldn't make decisions for those people. Right. So like I, I use this all the time. I think about, if you think back to like, you know, if you're a high school kid, for instance, you were given this example, you know, the kid that's being called a pussy and all this stuff. And maybe yeah. he's being called a pussy because he writes poetry. Let's just give you an example. But like when you're 30, those same kids in your school aren't going to be the one, aren't going to be there, right? And I found that like for me, that those environments and even being in a fraternity kept me from some of those, like kept me from pursuing some of those things that were seen as less masculine, right? Or like artsy or not kind of like, you know, just going out to the bar and picking up chicks, Yeah, you know? And so like, don't become a prisoner of the moment, you know? So just remember that like, if your plan is bigger than right now, then the people around you are also going to shift and you can fathom a scenario where there will be people who are like-minded and supportive of you. And so like, don't feel like you have to impress the people around you all day long, you know, be yourself, be authentic, work on you. And um, the people will gravitate or repel, you know, as you do that. And I think that that's super important just to, just to know that like those people may not be there forever. And so like, it's not, it's, it's doing yourself a disservice to make decisions that honor those people and not yourself. Love that. Good piece of advice. It's the first time we've gotten that piece of advice. Thank you, my man. I really appreciate it. This is a good time, a cool hour. 
I really appreciate your authenticity, um, sharing your journey with us. Um, love to connect with you again in the future. Absolutely, for the Building Men sure. audience, go one step further than you thought you could go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. Building <laughs> Men.